morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, November 15th. Supply chain issues are forcing San Diego restaurants to get creative. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Over the weekend, workers at Kaiser Permanente reached a tentative deal with union leaders on a four-year contract covering nearly 50,000 employees in 22 local unions. The agreement prevented a potential strike of thousands of workers this week. The deal now goes to a common issues committee and then to union members for ratification. Voting will occur over the next several weeks. Health officials say it's time to get your COVID-19 booster shot. Right now, the best data suggests eligible adults should get the same vaccine for your booster as you got originally. However, a mix and match will also work. Dr. Davy Smith is the head of infectious diseases and global public health at UC San Diego. I think it is important for people who are eligible to get a booster dose to go ahead and get them. Uh, winter is coming, as they say. I am sure we're going to have an increase in cases and having more more people better vaccinated, as, as one might expect with a booster, should help. The new Surfrider Foundation State of the Beach report gives California strong marks. The group studies how states with coastal borders are preparing for a warming climate. The Surfrider Foundation's Stephanie Seekich Quinn says the state is doing well with managing development, sea level rise, and sediment management. She says the state's legislature, governor, and coastal commission are doing the right things. It is the progressive nature of those three different entities that are constantly propelling California forward so that we manage our coastlines properly. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, Then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. The pandemic already turned the restaurant business upside down. Now, that business is challenged with inflated food prices. KPBS's Melissa May describes how a local restaurant group is coping with the higher prices. Specialty Produce is one of the largest food service and fresh produce suppliers in San Diego. Prices are always going to go up. Uh, we have to find innovative ways to be more productive, increase productivity of people working for you better cooperation with your vendors and your customers. So all this, we always do work as a team in in this industry. Bob Harrington is the owner of Specialty Produce and says the fuel prices to run his fleet of over 70 distribution trucks is one of his biggest expenses, along with the price of getting the products to his actual warehouse. The cost of that truck for that four or five day period has gone up pretty dramatically, 30, 40%. 
So it adds a lot of cost to the, uh, to the product itself. Harrington is used to inflation. I've never seen a time in the 40 years I've done this that there hasn't been inflation. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I used to sell, in 1977, I sold avocados for 11 cents each. So I think since 1977, how many times have avocados gone up in price? Specialty Produce sells and distributes supplies to over a thousand restaurants each week, including those that are a part of the Trust Restaurant Group. Figuring out ways to, to make money off of the things that you may not have made money on in before. That's Brad Wise, chef owner of Trust Restaurant Group. Besides operating five restaurants throughout San Diego, they own a butcher shop and a catering company. Rising food prices have forced his business to get creative. Zero waste goes into it too. We make sure that, that every piece of, of every item is being used, you know, and, and, you know, if it's the fat trim, it's being, you know, on this steak or at the butcher shop, it's being rendered down, put into butter that is for sale. So we've, we've, when your back is up against a wall, that's usually when you're the most creative. Wise tries to make sure the higher food costs do not significantly increase prices for his guests. I'll go to a product that may be a little bit smarter, buy in bulk and things like that. So although I've been, you know, extremely hit by this, 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 this kind of trend that's happening now. Um, you know, we're just trying to be as agile and as smart as we can on everything. Wise says customers have been understanding of higher food bills and inflation is not going to stop his restaurants from providing a place for the community to gather and eat. This industry can't go anywhere, especially in San Diego. So it's, it's just, let's just keep pushing forward one foot in front of the next and keep rolling. It'll get better, hopefully. And that's reporting from KPBS's Melissa May. California's Independent Redistricting Commission approved the first official draft congressional district map last week. But some observers say the process lacked transparency and would dilute the voting power of some communities of color. CAP Radio's Nicole Nixon reports. In the hours before draft maps were approved, the public couldn't even view them. The only version of the congressional draft was a low-resolution image that made it impossible to distinguish lines in densely populated areas. Matt Rexrode is a Republican redistricting consultant. The public has to be able to look at those tools that are given them to them by the commission and be able to say yes or no, I like that or don't like that. And there are other concerns with the drafts, too. California is losing a congressional seat, and it appears the area most impacted is a heavily Latino district in Los Angeles. That's according to Democratic redistricting expert Paul Mitchell. In a state with growing Latino population and a diminishing white population created a remedy that just eliminates the Latino seat, I think that would be a scar on this commission. Members of the commission acknowledge the drafts aren't perfect and will go through more changes before final maps are adopted. They're encouraging public comment before their final deadline on December 27th. And that was CAP Radio's Nicole Nixon. A lot of people in California are concerned about the widening gap between the rich and the poor in the state. KQED's Katie Orr reports on the results of a new survey. The poll from the Public Policy Institute of California finds an overwhelming majority say the gap between the haves and have-nots is getting bigger. But PPIC President and Survey Director Mark Baldessari says even in these partisan times, there's a lot of consensus about how to fix the problem. Creating more affordable child care for lower-income workers, whether it's 
comes to improving job training and also when it comes to finding ways to provide housing close to work in our regions that are more affordable for people. More than 75 percent of Californians think the government should help low-income families pay for child care. Even more support increased funding for job training programs. And that was KQED's Katie Orr. The new trillion-dollar infrastructure bill passed by Congress last week is designed to overhaul and reimagine much of the nation's roadways, bridges, ports, rail transit, and power grid. San Diego is in line to receive tens of millions of dollars from the bill. But how the federal infrastructure bill could affect San Diego's ambitious infrastructure plans is now being examined by SANDAG officials. Hassani Krada is the executive director of the San Diego Association of Governments. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh. Is San Diego guaranteed a certain amount of money under the infrastructure bill? Absolutely. Um, there's two parts to the bill. One is the formula funding that we're going to get from Washington, but the most importantly is the grant funding we could get if we put good applications together. And I can tell you that this federal bill is a welcome news. It is an amazing opportunity for this region to move major infrastructure projects. To say it lightly, this national infrastructure bill puts every federal funding program in steroids. It doubles the federal program to support and expand the regional rail system. It uh, makes projects like fixing the Del Mar Plough for moving the trunk uh, more achievable. It funds border infrastructure and makes our Otay Mesa 2 project uh, more achievable. Uh, it, it moves us into the future when it comes to electric charging. It's an amazing program, and I think San Diego region will be one of the regions that use as an example of how successful it's been. As you mentioned, much of the money will be allocated under the discretion of the Department of Transportation, those grant funds, as you said. How is San Diego prepared to compete for those funds? We, in the last couple of years, we actually have proven that we can get federal and state funding because we have very innovative and creative programs. Uh, we are ready at SANDAG to put, actually, we've been ready for a while to apply for funding to move the tracks of the bluff, to stabilize the bluff, to build the Otay Mesa to, to continue with our environmental work on the new commuter rail lines. And so what we're going to do is we're going to immediately, once the department is ready with the rules, we're going to immediately put this application. And not only that, this application has all the innovation and the data needed to make them successful. So we're we're more than ready at Sandag. And, and this is something your listeners probably be interested to know. Uh, San Diego, when it comes to, you know, population, we're about 1% of the of the nation's population. But if you look at our history, we got more than 1% of the funding because we're creative, we're innovative, we're ready to go. And this five big moves, this plan that we're just about to go to our board to adopt has definitely reimagined the future of transportation in San Diego, have definitely put us in line to compete and, and be the best competitor for all these programs that this national bill has. So we're ready, uh, Maureen, we're ready to go and, and we're ready to receive 
significant funding from the federal government. So you're saying you think the proposed new regional transportation plan uh, gives us an edge in competing for the funds because of, of the kinds of projects in it. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, th- this plan, as I said, not only reimagine the future transportation in San Diego, but goes into the areas that this bill emphasized, rail, which we're putting 200 miles of air belt rail, and we're gonna we're about to start the environmental work in that. Moving the, the tracks of the Del Mar Pluff and stabilizing the Pluff for good, building the tunnel needed for that. We're, we just signed a memorandum of understanding with our partners in Mexico and Nota Mesa too. Uh, we're building a central mobility hub and making, uh, providing choices for San Diegans to get around. So this, the five big moves, the new plan definitely position us not only to compete for federal, but for state funding. It, it positions us to be very successful and exa- we were expecting exactly what's happening in DC right now when we start the work on this. Now, would monies received from the infrastructure bill allow Sandag to abandon ideas like charging a four cent a mile driving fee to fund transportation projects? The simple answer is yes, it could. We, we still need to know uh, the, the impact of this in the overall uh, regional transportation plan. But if we could get because of this stimulus, national stimulus, we could get enough money. Obviously, we, we need the local funding. They haven't been in history and many projects that were 100% funded by the federal government. So you need the local match to be successful. Every project requires you to put local money on the table. We're about to deliver the mid-cost, a $2.2 billion project. The federal government paid half about a billion, and we paid half. So I don't expect this would replace the need for federal funding, but the local funding. But would this, for example, look at the statewide road charge? That's going to have to be there because that's what the state is going to do by 2030. The additional road charge? Yes, we're going to evaluate and see whether we still need this, but absolutely it's going to impact our local financial strategy moving forward. Aren't there climate considerations though in that four cent a mile driving fee to try to get people off roads and onto public transportation? Totally. Uh, I think, uh, Maureen, I spoke to you and Andrew Bowen when I started here, but almost three years ago. And I told you, and I, you could research this article, I told you climate change is gonna drive our transportation decisions. And that's exactly still true today. Climate change is driving it. Uh, the road user charge is a very effective strategy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that continue to be part of the discussion. But even if we scale down uh, the, the, the local funding sources, we still need to come up with measures to reduce greenhouse emission because we're required to do it by state law. So yes, there is global warming consideration for that, not only funding, and now that giving that we have a national stimulus that we think we're going to compete well for, do we need the state charge and the local charge, or do we need one of them? That's something we still don't know the answer to. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're going to have a plan that meets the state greenhouse gas emission reduction, that meets the federal requirement of financial constraints, and meets our goals as a region 
to move forward with a system that reimagines the future of transportation. And how quickly do you expect the funds to be released and these projects started? I believe uh, um, uh, this is the optimist in me. Uh, I believe by by the end of this year, we should we should hopefully see a final rules. Uh, but for us, we are writing the application right now, in anticipation of these rules being finalized. Uh, quickly uh, depended uh, the stages of the project. We have right now a billion dollar worth projects that are ready to go. We're ready to cut the ground, but we have multiple billion dollar project that we're still in the environmental uh, and design process. And that is where I hope when the Department of Transportation, the National Department of Transportation put the rules out that they allow projects in the environmental stage to be eligible. And, And that's our hope. So it could be very quickly, but it will all depend how quickly the rules can be put in place. So the rules of the game are clear. That was Hassani Krata, the executive director of the San Diego Association of Governments. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh. Coming up, Clifton Hicks came from a military family. He joined the army and was deployed to Iraq in 2003. What does he think when he looks back on his service? The only thing I'm proud of is that I spoke out against the war. We'll hear from an Army veteran who became a conscientious objector. More on that next, just after the break. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. Now for the story of an American veteran, the latest in our five-part series from the American Homefront. Clifton Hicks came from a family with a long history of military service. Watching the 9-11 terror attacks on TV in high school, all he wanted to do was join the army and serve his country. But his deployment to Iraq in 2003 fundamentally changed his relationship with the military. Pretty quickly, I learned to hate the place. I did count the days. I did not like what I was doing. It wasn't glamorous, it wasn't masculine, it wasn't honorable, it was just stupid and dangerous. Everybody that I knew that around me, nobody wanted to be there. You know, you kick yourself every day for being such a damn fool that you volunteered to come out to do this. I think the only time I ever really saw a confirmed enemy, you know, up close was when I was on gate guard duty, where you have to guard the main gate to the base. And there was a mortar attack while I was on gate guard. And after the mortar attack, this Iraqi guy came walking up to the gate and he had his hand blown almost completely off. His hand was wrapped up in a bloody rag. And they so they brought the medics up there and they quickly determined that he had powder burns all on his hand. He had just been firing the mortars at us. 
She was just a regular guy. And truth be told, he had every right to try to kill me. It's their land. It's their city. I have no business here. You know, if I'd been born in Iraq, I would be him. And uh, then there comes that happy day when you actually hand it all off to the new guys and it's their problem now. We started to hear through word of mouth that things were going really bad in Iraq. You know, parts of Baghdad had been overrun, that our old base where we were had been overrun, that all of Fallujah had been taken by insurgents and that a lot of Americans were getting killed. But we still had that feeling like, man, we got out of there just in time. It never occurred to anybody around me that the army would send us back. Things were very different when we got back. All of the overpasses over the highway had been blown up. And the closer we got to Baghdad, the more just destruction you started to see on the side of the roads. You started to see, you know, tons of shot up, burnt, like, trucks and cars on the side of the road. Uh, you would see the occasional uh, dead person on the side of the road. You know, I kind of clammed up at that point. I stopped talking for a long period of time because basically as an 18-year-old kid at that point, it was more than I could process. I could not make sense of the things that I was seeing. So my response was just to shut down and just pull into myself. When I did start speaking again, I was very vocal about how wrong the war was and how we shouldn't be there and how we were all getting used. When I got back to Germany, they had us in the basement, lined up outside the arms room, and we all drew our rifles again right back into training. Like, that's how the Army operates. So I knew, I was like, oh, they're going to send me right back as soon as they can. I remember that moment where I thought, I've got to get out of this any way I can. Like, I, I will not go back to Iraq. And so once I'd done my research, I found the Army's definition of a conscientious objector was just that you had to be genuinely opposed to war. There was tons of paperwork, but after eight months, somebody came and said, hey, you're needed up at the first sergeant's office. And I was like, oh, great, you know, I'm in trouble again because I'd been in a lot of trouble. And so I went back up to the first sergeant's office and, uh, and he said, oh, your paperwork came through. You've been honorably discharged. That was probably the happiest day of my life. The only thing I'm proud of is that I spoke out against the war. That was Clifton Hicks, recorded by Insignia Films for GBH Boston. You can hear more on the PBS series American Veteran and the podcast American Veteran Unforgettable Stories. This excerpt was produced by the American Homefront Project. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.